I've been there. <clears throat> I want to uh, perhaps underpin a little more the two threads that we see woven throughout all the tapestry of the prophecies. Those two threads that are undeniable and that come up and are there constantly are the first thread of spiritual Israel, spiritual Judah, the church, and secondarily, the other thread of physical Israel. And those two are seen over and over and over again, and even yesterday in, in this series so far. I have made many, many allusions to that, uh, pointing out one or the other or both at the same time, and indeed they are, both of them, there virtually all the time, sometimes easier to discern, sometimes the, the one thread of the church seems clearer, and sometimes the thread of physical Israel seems clearer, but the two run together all through prophecy. Now I've said many times, and have in this series already, that <clears throat> many of the splinter groups or the Daughters of Zion that have come out of Worldwide Church of God are busy trying to preach the gospel to the world in the hope that many will yet be called. And one of the reasons that they do that is a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are. They just don't grasp what God is doing right now, partly because they don't understand who the 144,000 are. Now, Mr. Armstrong changed several times in his view of who constitute the 144,000. And there are theories going in the church now that uh, Revelation 7, <clears throat> where it says 12,000 from each tribe excepting Dan, equaling 144,000, are a different group than those in Revelation 14, where 144,000 are mentioned. I believe that to be error. Uh, in both cases, it's talking of the same group of people. And when you understand who they are, then it changes your view of what needs to be done here at the end. I think Mr. Armstrong was left in the dark on this particular issue for a reason. Uh, he told me in 1981 that he was Zerubbabel. So I went home and started digging in the book of Haggai in the first part of Zechariah and saw Zerubbabel and Joshua there, and it seemed to fit to one degree or another, uh, Herbert Armstrong being generally a righteous leader and his son being generally filthy, uh, as Joshua is depicted there. <clears throat> now, I think that there may have been a minor type there in the end-time work, but they certainly did not ever fulfill those scriptures having to do uh, with Haggai and Zechariah. And in fact, they formed the former temple and were in that sense a small type. But the latter temple has yet to be built, and those two have to be fulfilled, Jerubbabel and Joshua, in a very dramatic fashion. Uh, Herbert Armstrong and his son were not the final two witnesses. They were certainly two witnesses who had a calling work, but not the final two. Let's go to Revelation 14.4 and understand 
These are 144,000 who wind up standing on Mount Zion with the Father's name on their foreheads. These are the promises which were laid out in Revelation 2 and 3 to the church, or the church is. The church as a whole, but the different branches of the church. <clears throat> Verse 4, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, some people have felt that these had to all be unmarried young people. <laughs> but uh, Paul says back in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, or is it first? Yeah, I think that's where it is, somewhere right in there, 5, 8. Says that he will present the church at Corinth as chaste virgins before God. Now, the church at Corinth had been as morally weak and sinful as any group of people addressed in the New Testament. And having come out of that background, he's going to present them as chaste virgins to God? Well, certainly, because it's a spiritual appellation we're talking about. All their sins would be forgiven, and whatever they had done physically, did not matter. Once they came under the blood of Christ, all sin would be removed and they would be, spiritually speaking, virgins before God. So that fits very well with Revelation 14.4. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and the bride goes wherever he goes. Those in the first resurrection go, first resurrection go wherever he goes, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Says they will rise to meet him and ever be with him. Jude says he'll never depart from him. He'll go everywhere he goes. And that's what it says about these. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed. Isn't there a plan of redemption in the Bible? These were redeemed from among men, or purchased, as another word, bought, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now, did John's pen jerk when he wrote this? These are the first fruits. No more, no less are first fruits. These 144,000 are defined as the first fruits. Now, did not we understand, under Mr. Armstrong even, and through Scripture, of course, that the first resurrection is the resurrection of the first fruits? Anytime we went through Pentecost and the meaning of Pentecost, that's the feast of the first fruits. Pentecost has to do with the first fruits. The 144,000 first fruits. That's all there are. Now this is explained even more fully, or certainly far more fully, than I'm going to do right now in the series on uh, how exclusive is the church because it boils down to being a very exclusive group. Now, where the misunderstanding comes is, A, they don't understand that 144,000 are the first fruits, no more, no less. And secondarily, they think that the innumerable multitude following that, in this context, will also be in the first resurrection. That can be proved to be not so through Scripture. So here is the problem. Feeling that, they, that the first fruits include both the 144,000 plus the innumerable multitude, they feel they must go out there and more or less convert the world. And that is not necessary. What is necessary is to round out the number of the first fruits. And I trust that since God used Herbert Armstrong as the greatest calling facility, 
that has ever been, even more so than in the early New Testament church, perhaps, and certainly here at the end time. He used him to do that. Well, if that was God's express purpose, don't you think he would have finished it? Don't you think that God knew how many had been sealed up to that point from all the Old Testament patriarchs, from the early New Testament church, and those who existed through the Middle Ages, God knew, he counts, how many have been written in the book of life, how many have been sealed as first fruits. So he knows exactly how many more slots there are to fill, right? He can count. Therefore, he used Herbert Armstrong to call enough people that from that great calling, he would be able to choose, select, and sift down and finish filling out those slots. God is not so inept and so incompetent that he could not make sure there were enough there so that he might have enough selection to fulfill his purposes. And Herbert Armstrong, on some level, understood that because he told Joe to Koch, my work is finished, that is, calling, preaching the gospel to the world and baptizing people of all nations. My work is finished. That's the work he did, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. <clears throat> the preaching the gospel to the world and then the end coming in Matthew 24, 14 is the job of the two witnesses. It wasn't his job. He thought it was, and God let him labor under that. Just as he allowed Paul and Peter and John and James and all the apostles to labor under the thought that Christ was coming back in their lifetime, kept them busy, kept them doing what needed to be done because they felt an urgency. So Mr. Armstrong said, my work is finished. The calling basically is done except for a few at the 11th hour. Get the church ready. He outlined the job of the ministry from that point on. And most are still basically ignoring the church, except as people who send money so that they can preach the gospel to the world, which is something that God does not need done right now. What he needs to do is get the 144,000 ready. Now, with this understanding, we have to look at all the prophecies of the Bible with the idea that this particular work that needs to be done now of getting the 144,000 ready, preparing the bride, is going to be a very important thread throughout everything that happens in the end time. Now what happens to physical Israel is also a very important thread because both the church has to be obliterated and knocked down without one stone upon another in order to fulfill the purpose God has in the church. Because the church has to be ready to do the end time work with the two witnesses as their leaders. There is a work to be done. So the destruction of the church and the preparation of the people and getting ready to build the latter temple has to be the most important thing going on right now because we have to be ready to do that work at the end. The destruction of physical Israel and the nations of the world come a little bit after that. So in the sequence and order of how these threads go through prophecy, the church is first and foremost, and, and Israel then would be the thread under that, that leads to the destruction of physical Israel at the end of the age, the rest of the nations too for that matter, and then the beginning of the millennium.
let's go to Isaiah 11 and place that principle in this chapter as well. Now, I'm a little hesitant in a way, but I see this thread going everywhere else in the Bible. Why shouldn't it go here? Notice the end of chapter 10 again, verse 32. As yet shall he remain, this is speaking of the Assyrian who is destroying Israel at this time, and I believe that there are Gentiles who came in to destroy the church. Tkach is not an Israelite name. And certainly he did much to destroy the church. So the Assyrian came into the church, and I think Raider would also fit. Raider of the Ark of God, not the lost Ark. Well, that Ark has been pretty much lost too. Some of these things that are happening in the world and even the movies they make have a, an incredible parallel to some of the scriptures. Anyway, the Assyrian will remain at Nob that day. He shall shake his hand against the mouth of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Now, he's going to destroy nations and peoples, not a few, but it appears he can only shake his hand, shake his fist at Mount Zion, at the church. That's all he can do because God does not give him power over them. God stops it there because he needs the church at Zion to fulfill his end-time work. It's got to be done. So he will stop the Assyrian short of that. He'll allow it to destroy the physical nation at that point, but not the church. All right, let's go to chapter 11 then. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, I don't think there's any commentator or any Christian, quote, unquote, true or untrue Christian, who has ever thought really that this chapter is talking about anyone but Christ. And indeed, I do believe it is speaking of Christ. Don't get me wrong here at all. I do believe it's speaking of Christ ultimately. But God is going to use people to do his work. And notice the way this is worded. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow up out of his roots. Now, did we not read just the other day in Zechariah 4 and in Zechariah 6 and in Isaiah 31, and it's in several other places I did not go to, that God is going to raise up a righteous branch or bough or limb as the rubble bell to lead his end-time church. So here, and he, and he also says in those scriptures about that man and those two, that they will have a plumb line to measure the verticality or the spirituality of the church. They are to measure the altar in Revelation 11, 1 and 2. And they are to stretch a rod over, and everyone must pass under the rod. Like a shepherd's rod, when they counted the sheep, he held out the rod, and they went under, and he counted them as so he went under the rod so he could keep proper track. And they were checked as they ran under the rod for disease and defects and problems and so on. So God has given that to the end-time church. So there will be a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Remember Isaiah 31 where it says, well, I'll turn back and read it, 31, I think it's about, about verse 37, somewhere in there. Uh, 
we'll get to this one a little later on, but it fits pretty well here. Uh, Isaiah 37, verse 31. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah, of the church, here is the first thread, shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. So the church, which has been decimated, is again going to take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem or the church shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the eternal of hosts, shall do this. So there's going to be fruit born. A branch will grow up here, it says, out of his roots. Isaiah 31 says, spring up, or spring upward. Tantamount uh, is saying the same thing. And the Spirit of the Eternal shall rest upon him. So God's Spirit will rest upon a man first. That's the first thread. Because God is going to use men to accomplish a great deal before Christ even comes on the scene. Now Christ will be working through them, so ultimately it's his work. Let's not get that wrong. This is not the work of men. won't be. Any work of men is being knocked down. The work of God cannot be worked down, knocked down. The only reason Worldwide Church of God could be knocked down was because God ordained it ahead of time. He knew that we would become lackadaisical, half-hearted, and seek materiality and not seek Him with our whole hearts. He knew that ahead of time. So He could say it will be knocked down, but it would not be completely destroyed. Remember Shear Jashub we read about yesterday, a remnant shall return. The first thread is a return as far as the church is concerned, the second thread is a return of Israel physically during the millennium. And we'll see that that is not separated from Isaiah 11, but those two threads run through here as well. So this will be a man whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the eternal. It's a human being who fears God. Now, ultimately, Christ will come, who fears his Father, and he will set up his kingdom on the earth. But meanwhile, there has to be a microcosm of the millennium built within the church. We have to become a light to the world and a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. That's what Christ told us in Matthew. We must do that. We must be that. And we must not imbibe of the wisdom of this world, but come to have the understanding, the knowledge, the wisdom, the spirit of right counsel and might of God. That's what he expects of his church and his people. Notice Haggai 2 in this light. Haggai 2, verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Now, this wasn't the original Zerubbabel who came out of Babylon. This is the Zerubbabel at the end who comes out of Babylon because the context is clearly when God shakes the earth and the heavens. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the th strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. That hasn't been done yet. And I will overthrow the war machines and those that ride in them, 
and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. God will turn them against each other as he did in the days of Gideon. And we've already read that uh, in the first part of Isaiah. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, will I take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Eternal, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen you, says the Eternal of hosts. So here is a signet, a banner, uh, a flag that God is going to place on the end-time leader of the church, Zerubbabel. Now that fits in very nicely with uh, Isaiah 11. Let's see, there's a place in here. Oh yeah, verse 10. And that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. Ensign, signet, essentially the same thing. All right, let's go. We'll pick that up a little later on, but I wanted to drop that in there at this point so that we can see that there are two threads here. One of the leadership God gives physically to his church to bring peace in the church, and doesn't he say in the book of Haggai, in this place will I bring peace. So the end time church, the latter temple, will have peace. It's important we as part of the end time church today learn to have peace among ourselves. It's one of the fruits of God's spirit. Verse 3 of Isaiah 11, And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the eternal. Here is someone who is going to be very much attuned to God and very quick to answer what God wants done. Not hmm, da-da-da-da, but quick to understand and quick to act. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, won't go by rumor, or what he thinks he sees. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Now, could that be a man? Well, have you read Revelation 11 lately? Where it says that the two witnesses will drop plagues on the earth with the rod of their mouth. They will speak a plague and it will happen. And if anyone would hurt or try to destroy them, fire will proceed from their mouths and kill them. Looks like that fits this quite well. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his ranks. <clears throat> so God is going to bring in those who will be righteous leaders. Now that's what we find in Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23. Those scriptures that we turn to so quickly to show that the ministry at the end is rotten. And in, tru in truth, there's no way that we can deny Ezekiel 34. That is a correct assessment of where we have been. But that's not where we're going to go. Maybe I should turn back and read that and show you what it says after that. that people, you know, people tend to read that part which fits what they're looking at, and they don't read the rest. But we need to understand the rest because there's a lot of encouragement here. <clears throat> so he says, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel in chapter 34 and how they've not taken care of the people and feed themselves and not the flock and so on. And, and that's the way we were. 
My sheep wandered through all the mountains, verse 6, and upon every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. End of verse 8, the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. He says at the end of verse 10, I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them. And then God says, I, even I, in verse 11, will both search my sheep and seek them out. That ties in beautifully with Haggai, where he says he will stir up two leaders and he will stir up a faithful remnant to come to them to build the temple. God is going to seek them out. He knows where they are. He can find them. They're scattered through all the organizations. They're sitting alone in some cases, but they're the ones who are being faithful to God in spite of everything. He will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And they'll feed upon the mountains of Israel. It says in the, the end of verse 16, he'll destroy the fat and the strong. Um, verse 23, I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Eternal, have spoken it. Now, this ultimately refers to the millennium. But in the meantime, he shows that a peaceful church has to be raised up under two faithful shepherds right at the end time. It won't last long, because Christ will return, the millennium will come, and he will become all in all. And he, all these types, like Moses, like Abraham, uh, who were types, well, Abraham and Isaac were a type of the Father and the Son. I think that's, you can't miss that. Moses was a type of Christ who leads his people out. You can't miss that. Joshua and Zerubbabel at the end are a type of Christ who lead God's people to safety, to refuge under Christ, and preach righteousness to them, and feed them properly, and peace comes during that time, it says in the book of Haggai. So these, these are end-time types, and all of those types come together, of course, in Jesus Christ. We should never minimize that. So don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to minimize that whatsoever. But he is going to bring, bring peace to the end-time church. Now, that thread comes in Isaiah 11, verse 5 where it says righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. God is going to make his people righteous at the end. He says in Isaiah 54 that their righteousness is not of themselves, but their righteousness is of him. So it will not be self-righteousness for a change. It will be the true righteousness of God through all of us who respond. Verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the cat, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the su sucking child shall play on the hole of the snake, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that verse expands this beyond this age and into the millennium, no doubt. But have you taken notice, as we went through the first chapters of Isaiah, that even in the middle of a prophecy about Ahaz and what would happen to him and what would happen to Israel at that time in history, we have 
Christ's birth being foretold, right in the middle of that. Seems incongruous in a way. And then we have how he will take the government and the government will be upon his shoulder and so on. And that flashes forward to the millennium. And yet it's still ensconced in the context of prophecies that were happening in that day. So all these prophecies move forward. And it shows that they do have a fulfillment, or did back then, and they also have an end-time fulfillment, or Christ would not be there and be involved in those end-time fulfillments. So even this, which projects into the millennium, I believe, has a thread which has to do with the church. And I think we should find this very encouraging. Remember he said there in Zechariah 2 that he would put his church together as villages without walls, that he would be a wall of fire around, that he would be a protection from above, as we read in Isaiah 4, that he would protect his people, that there would be a refuge. Well, now his people, when they come there, are going to have left their homes, they're going to have left wherever they were, and gone there with what? Nothing. Don't even go back in your house and get anything. Call the dog if he comes, fine. If he doesn't, go. God will have to give everything that is given, a place prepared for her. I believe that that place will not have ravenous bears and lions at that time. God will have to protect his people. He's promised that he will. There will be a time of peace because the end-time church is a type of, with spiritual Israel, the millennium having to do with physical Israel. And spiritual Israel will have to have been prepared, will have to have learned peace among themselves in order to be kings and priests and rulers in the world tomorrow. We have to have lived it in order to teach it. If you don't walk the walk, how are you going to teach the talk? We have a lot of learning to do. And it is incumbent upon us to learn peace among ourselves. It must be done. How do you teach peace if you don't know how to bring peace? How can you teach righteousness if you have not learned righteousness? So I believe that this thread of the church does not suddenly stop in Isaiah 11 and then pick up further on. It has to be woven throughout the prophecies. Therefore, this pictures a time of peace in the church at the, right at the end time, even before it pictures a time of peace in the millennium. You'll notice the most people who read this just in terms of the millennium, and it's being read probably a very popular scripture right now in the organizations scattered abroad during the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is the one that somebody's going to go to and expound on in every feast site probably. Us too. Here we are. But I really rather doubt they read anything but verses 1 through 9. They'll rehearse about the cow and the bear and the 
lion and the kid, the goat. Somebody pointed out the other day, and I thought it was rather ironic, there is no mention here of the lion and the lamb. I've never noticed that before. My class ring, which I'm having enlarged so that I can actually wear it again from Ambassador College, has the seal on there of the college of the lion and the lamb. Not in here. The wolf with the lamb, the leopard with the kid, the calf and the young lion, the fatling calf and a little child leading them, the cow and the bear, but nothing but a lion and a lamb about Maybe it's not necessarily significant. It's just interesting that we didn't put something on the emblem that was actually in here. Now, of course, these things, if they're all peaceable and all lying down together, the lion and the lamb will be together. It's just that it doesn't specifically say that. I, why are we wasting time on it? But it's just interesting to me. See... Verse 9, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, God is going to set his church on a mountain, on a hill, a light to be seen by the whole world. And as we've shown before, the whole world will be against the church. There will only be two entities, God and Satan, church and world. Those two will be vying back and forth on the world stage. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain could mean that where God protects his people, no damage can be done. The Assyrian can only stand afar and shake his fist, as we read in chapter 10. And that which is a light, right at the end, for that last seven to three and a half years, will be a model for what has to come. I believe that it will be a time of teaching, that Christ himself may very well be there to help prepare his people uh, for their job to come. Now much of that may be done in that year in which we have a honeymoon at God's throne after the wedding, but I think that it will be, to some degree, a teaching time. And maybe a lot of that teaching will simply be God's people learning to live together in a closed area in peace. And from there, it will spread to the whole earth. That's the beginning of the reign of Christ. It will spread to the whole earth. But he's going to start with spiritual Israel, and then when they are married to Christ as the bride, we'll come back with him a year later, after the seven last plagues, and set up his government. Let's continue. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. Now, Christ came out of Jesse's lineage, David being Jesse's son, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. In other words, physical Israel is going to be scattered all over the world, but I think it's interesting, he sets his hand the second time. He sets his hand the first time to regather the church and its faithful remnant to be a microcosm of his government in the millennium. And then he sets his hand a second time to gather physical Israel so that that 144,000 with Christ can 
rule them as kings and priests in the millennium. Now it could be interpreted here the second time, meaning he gathered them out of Egypt the first time, and then the second time he gathers them out of where they've been scattered around the earth. That could be a partial fulfillment. But remember, this is in its entirety an end-time prophecy. There's nothing in this context as anything but in time. So it could very well be that the first thread is to gather his church, the second thread is to gather physical Israel from wherever they've been scattered as slaves around the earth to begin the millennium. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now he's going to do that with the church first, isn't he? Gather the remnant from all over. And secondarily, he's going to gather physical Israel from where they have been made outcasts around the earth. So I see, I think, clearly both threads all the way through here. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Do you see how those prophecies toward Ahab, where there was a conspiracy at that time against Judah between Ephraim and Syria, are reenacted here at the end. And some of those frustrations and problems and difficulties between brothers have existed all through until today, just as the enmity between Esau and Jacob has gone from the time that the physical brothers were there until the end time where God says that Esau finally will gain ascendancy over Jacob for a short time before Esau is destroyed there in Obadiah. So he says at this point, that argument and that fight between Ephraim and Judah will finally end thousands of years later. The envy of Ephraim shall depart, it says. Who is envied today? Does anybody envy the Jews in Palestine particularly? Who do they envy? America. I am thinking more and more that America represents Ephraim and Britain represents Manasseh. Now it doesn't really matter because it says Ephraim, Manasseh, Manasseh, Ephraim. They're brothers together and they're always put together basically in prophecy. But there is that possibility that we are Ephraim here. Is Britain envied around the world today? Yeah, not so as you'd notice, really, but America is. Be that as it may, the envy of Ephraim shall depart, or the envy of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh together, are generally combined. And the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Well, Judah has a lot of people. Hate the Jews is a pretty a slogan you can use almost anywhere, and somebody will say, I'm with that. A lot of people hate the Jews. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. So God is going to make Israel the lead nations again in the millennium, just as spiritual Israel is the leader of all churches on the earth and the only ones that they can look to. So both threads are there. <clears throat> God will utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, 
That is, what is the power and the source of strength for Egypt? The Nile. If the Nile weren't there, Egypt would not exist even as it does today. He will shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make men go over dry shot. So you have the estuary of the Nile going in the, into the Mediterranean Sea and God is going to cut that off. Egypt probably will not keep the Feast of Tabernacles right away. They'll receive no rain and their water will be shut off. But Egypt overall represents sin. And did not Gentile leaders lead all seven churches, all seven streams, back into sin? So that thread is here as well. There shall be a highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria. They'll be scattered all over the earth, but the Assyrian is going to be the leader of the end time New World Order once Islam has done its job, it appears the New World Order will take over. Like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. So God made a highway to bring Israel out. He's also going to make a highway to bring Israel out of Assyria or under the aegis of the Assyrian government, whatever form it might happen to take. Now he does refer back to Egypt here, so perhaps there is indeed where it talks about the second time a throwback to when they came out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. That will happen again. But it is clear through Scripture that God brings his remnant church back and then brings remnant physical Israel back. So that first and second time could, I believe, also be referring to that. And it certainly is an end-time context. All right, chapter 12. And in that day you shall say, O Lord, I will praise you. Who will say that? Church first. Who's beginning to say that now? Only the church. Physical Israel certainly isn't. Now we'll culminate in that, but that starts with us. In that day you shall say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Doesn't he say he's angry at the church, that he's turned his face from it, as well as physical Israel, but he will turn it back and bless in one day? Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. So there's a transition period here from the time that you're afraid until you're not afraid. When does the church itself reach the point it is not afraid? Are we still afraid? We're afraid we'll go into the tribulation. We're afraid we might have to die as martyrs. We're afraid we might not make it. We're afraid we will not be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are to come. There's still a certain amount of fear among us. Of course, perfect love and obedience casts out fear. But we don't have perfect love and obedience yet, so we still fear. But once you arrive at the place of safety, most of those fears will melt away, won't they? Because you know you escaped the tribulation. You know you're not going to die as a martyr unless you're one of the two witnesses you know that you are safe and that your salvation is secure unless somehow you rebel and walk out the gate back into the world. But I really rather doubt that would be a temptation at that point when the whole world is upside down 
you would want to do everything you possibly could to be sure you weren't kicked out the gate, wouldn't you? No, we'll understand then, and we'll trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. So we'll recognize that our salvation is near. I think at that point, if we're there, we will be able to say as Paul did, I've pretty much finished the race, I've run the course, my salvation awaits. And he was able to say that before he died. I don't know just how long before he died, but he recognized that he had overcome and he had gone through everything God was basically going to put him through and he had succeeded. So there will come a time of confidence like that. Therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. You'll be able to dip your pan down in the waters of salvation and know that you're going to come up with a full pail. And in that day shall you say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Now once you reach that point where you're about to be resurrected, or changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, and to be a part of God's kingdom and come back and rule the world in peace and righteousness, wouldn't you just want to boil over and tell everybody what God has done? Sing to the Eternal, for He has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Now it will be known in all the earth a little bit before Christ returns. Because the two witnesses are going to go out to all peoples and all nations all over the world. Yes, their job will end in Jerusalem, but they're not going to spend three and a half years preaching in Jerusalem. They've got to go out and be a witness to the whole world. And where will they point? If we're in a place of safety, hopefully they'll point to us and say, God is there. Emmanuel, God with us. There is peace. There is prosperity. There is no danger from the wolf or the lion. There is no danger from the Assyrian. There is no danger from anything because God is with us. And the whole earth is going to hear about it. Cannot be hid. The whole earth will see it. Now, that's the first thread. The second thread comes in Revelation 21. When Christ comes back with his bride, the 144,000, and sets up the new heavens and the new earth in the original Jerusalem, the original Mount Zion, and his father comes, the two of them live there, dwell there, and that Zion and that Jerusalem become the penultimate, total, absolute, I, I said penultimate, I meant the last, not the next to last, but the last fulfillment of these scriptures, when the whole world will look at that city, the New Jerusalem, us, with the Father and the Son ruling over us, and they will look there for a thousand years. But notice here, verse 6, cry out and shout, you inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of you. God's people are going to be in a place called Zion. It is a type of the final Zion and the new heavens and the new earth. So cry out and shout aloud and sing to God 
for the Holy One of Israel is in the midst of you. It'll be fulfilled twice. Now he turns, the prophet Isaiah, and begins a burden of Babylon. Now he's shown his people that they are going to have peace. They will have Jesus Christ, whether he is visible or whether he's there in spirit, ruling over them in Zion in peace. Then Isaiah turns his attention to the rest of the world and what will happen. God's people are safely put away from lions and bears, which can be represented by Russians and Islamics and Assyrians and whoever the nations of the world who might have come after them. And in that sense, those ravenous animals pitted against God's lambs and fatlings and kids, I think fits quite well. No longer will the predators of the Gentiles have any sway over God's people. Now it might be that that is the fulfillment of the first thread, and the lion and the lamb and everything have their, <laughs> I say that, those animals have their change only in the millennium. But I'm not so worried about cats and bears as I am Islamic fundamentalists and Assyrians at the moment. But we will be in safety, that's the key. Now the rest of the world will not. Only the church will be protected. Only those who have gone to a place of safety. The other 90% of the church are going to go into tribulation. There's only going to be a faithful remnant that God brings out to set as an example in a light upon the world of peace, prosperity, and righteousness. Now this burden of Babylon transcends, I think, our understanding of the United States being the leader of Babylon at the moment. As we go through this chapter, or these two chapters, we're going to see that he's talking about the entire world system, which will turn out to be Satan's system. So in the context, this is a, a broader prophecy, not a specific one like Babylon has fallen, has fallen in Revelation 18. This is a broad general uh, prophecy of all the kingdoms of this world here in Isaiah 13 and 14. The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see, lift you up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt the voice to them, shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. Now, God, a burden of Babylon is a prophecy against, a heavy burden that is laid on Babylon, okay? So there's nothing going to be said good about Babylon in this chapter. So he's saying, lift the banner up, exalt or raise or shout, and shake the fist. You know, like the Assyrian is going to shake his fist at God's church, he says, shake the fist at Babylon that they may go into the gates of the nobles. Let this message get to the leaders. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, even then that rejoice in my highness. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts musters the host of the battle. God says there's going to come a tremendous battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, I mean from as far as you can see, from the horizon, even the eternal and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. So he's going to have those from the earth and even those from heaven because God himself or Christ will be in charge of this battle. 
Howl you, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, if you had any question left that these prophecies didn't have to do just with ancient Israel, but are for today, this should put those to sleep. Howl, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. So the whole system of Babylon is going to have God's attention suddenly. He's going to rise and do his work. The day of the Lord is impending, the day when God takes a hand. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrow shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman in birth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames, or faces of the flames, lit up by fire. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. That's a pretty broad terminology there, the sinners. That includes the entire earth, doesn't it? Except those who have been counted righteous and taken out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause their light to shine. Now there are specific prophecies that show that this day of the Lord when that darkness occurs, comes right at the end of the tribulation, Matthew 25 being one of the, the clearest. But all the events leading up to that is what he's talking about. He's introducing here God coming against the world, and it will culminate in the day of the Lord, that specific period of time which is a year long if it's not cut short. And I will punish the world for their evil. So this is a burden of Babylon, and he says, the world. So Babylon is world-encompassing. And the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Anything that is vain, egocentric, or arrogant will be laid low. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, that is, rare be hard to find a man. He's going to decimate the population of the earth. Even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir, you find precious gold. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth, shall move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Now Satan's anger perhaps precedes this in the tribulation, but then God's anger is going to be turned loose. And it shall be as the chaste roe, and as a sheep that no man takes up. They shall every man turn to his own people, and flee every one into his own land. No matter where they are, they're going to try to find something comfortable. They're going to try to find something that they can remember that was good. You know how you might, many, many years after you grow up, go back to your hometown to see where you lived and what you did, and, and to feel comfortable there? problem is you go back and 30, 40, 50 years later it's a lot different than it was when you left. Things that look big then are pretty small now. And they won't find any comfort even if they go to their own land. Everyone that is found shall be thrust through and everyone that is joined to them shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes, taken by the feet and smashed against the wall and their heads explode like watermelons. That's what's coming.
Not a pretty picture. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives raped. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their, their object will not be riches. Their object will be destruction. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency, or the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. That was pretty complete. This won't be quite that complete, but the analogy certainly will fit. Isaiah 24 says it will be desolate with few men left. Be as rare as fine gold of Ophir. God is talking about virtual destruction of the population of the earth. He's only going to save out about 10% of Israel, and he will save even less, I believe, of the Gentiles. The book of Daniel indicates perhaps 100 million left, that's all. The United States alone right now is, what, 330, 40, 50 million. So the whole earth's population seems to be that it'll be 100 million out of 6.5 billion. That's not many left. That's not anywhere near 10%. So Babylon will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherd make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyr shall dance there, and the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. This thing is going to happen very rapidly. Now, what does this mean no one will ever dwell there? Perhaps, since the original Babylon was the center of the paganism that has since transcended the earth and gone everywhere, perhaps that will be a singular example in that area along the Euphrates where no one will dwell. Because if Babylon encompasses the whole world, and he did bring it out to speak of the whole world here, and we'll see that even more as we get into the next chapter, the whole world is not going to be uninhabited again, and Babylon has reached around the world. So to me it would appear that there will be, on the original site of Babylon, an example that will be there throughout the millennium that you don't go there anymore. You don't go where Babylon was or its beliefs which traveled around the world. Let's see that as we go on. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. Now, I think that indicates, because it's an extension of the thought here, for the Lord will have mercy on Jacob. Jacob has been a part of Babylon. And in fact, as we saw in the series on Babylon, I believe that Jacob is presently the leader of Babylon. And when in Revelation 18.4 it says Babylon is fallen, is fallen, it's not just for emphasis. It is that the present leader of Babylon, the United States and Great Britain, and Israel for that matter, will fall. They will be replaced by another leader of Babylon, the New World Order, they have to destroy the America, the great whore. 
America is the whore God talks about in Ezekiel 16, and we've already read about in the first part of uh, Isaiah 1. Will be destroyed by the beast, who will become then the next leader of Babylon, and they will only continue a few years and also be destroyed. So Babylon is going to be destroyed uh, twice in a very short space of time. We who represent it, and then the new Babylon that has taken over. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. They're going to be taken captive all over the world, but he will again bring them to their own land. And the strangers shall be joined with them and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. Now, if we are the leader of Babylon today, does that mean America would never be populated again in the millennium? I don't think so. I think that has to be a small area probably the original Babylon that is used as an example, that you don't follow that system, where the Tower of Babel was built, and then later on after it was destroyed, Babylon still put its false doctrine out, just as America today is corrupting the world faster than any other land. We're corrupting the world faster than the Catholic Church. We're corrupting the world faster than anyone, via television, via everything in our society, that is evil, rotten, wrong, and immoral. And the people shall take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the Lord for servants and handmaids, and they shall take them captives, whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and from the hard bondage wherein you were made to serve, that you shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How has the oppressor ceased? The golden city, or as my margin says, the exactress of gold, or the taxer, ceased. Those who would tax. Now, we are heavily taxed in this country. There are places in Israel, like Norway, that are in the 90% bracket. And they're already talking, in terms of the new world order, of a universal tax. A tax to be paid by everyone on earth to one world government. How has the oppressor ceased? The eternal has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. God is going to tear down all the government that is set up on this earth. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, remember their goal is to destroy 90% of the people on the earth, that those few left might enjoy the earth. He that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hinders. There's no one who hinders the United States as the present leader of Babylon in any meaningful way. And once we are destroyed, once the beast kills the whore and takes over, there will be none who can hinder that world-ruling empire. None hinders. But once God takes his hand, it says the whole earth is at rest and is quiet, they break forth into singing. This is the culmination of the end of the age when Christ returns and the whole earth then can finally rest. Now where does this come down to? Let's read on. It's interesting. Who is the real leader of Babylon? Yes, the fir trees rejoice at you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid down, no feller has come up against us. He uses an analogy of trees here on the earth. But once Babylon is laid flat, 
the forests and the trees will not have anything to fear. Hell from beneath is moved for you to meet you at, at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. Even all the chief ones of the earth, it is raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. All they shall speak and say to you, Are you also become weak as we? Are you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of your vials. The worm is spread under you, and the worms cover you. How are you fallen from heaven, O Hillel, son of the morning? God brings this right down and lays it on the head of Satan. He is the real leader of Babylon. It is Satan's whole system that is going to be destroyed. So it's not speaking of a little city in Mesopotamia. It's not speaking of our nation who represents the leadership of Babylon today. But it ultimately goes back to he who formed the pagan Babylonian doctrines in the first place. This is an unfortunate translation in the New King James, I mean in the King James, which I'm using, where it says, O Lucifer, because the word here in the Hebrew is Hellel, H-E-L-E-L. -E it's a Latin word meaning lightning or day star, star or morning star. I find it interesting as a sidebar, but Satan's name is Hellel, and the one who devised the Jewish, present Jewish calendar in the 4th century A.D. was named Hillel. Very little difference. But what did Hillel do? He perverted what God had put in the heavens. Has not Satan also perverted what God has put in the heavens and on the earth? Interesting parallel. Who is the true light bringer? Who said, let there be light in Genesis 1? Christ is the one who brought light to the earth after Satan darkened it in his rebellion. Let's go to John 1. John 1, here it's speaking of Christ. In the beginning was the Word... The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was nothing, was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Christ is the one who brought light. He has qualified to become the ruler of this earth. Now, Satan was, and to this day still is, the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this evil world. But in the battle, after 40 days of fasting, Christ defeated him and became qualified to rule the earth. Now, Satan offered him rulership of the earth if he would bow down. But you see, that rulership of the earth would have only been under Satan because he who offered it would still be in charge, even though Christ could have been a general under him, let's say. But you know where that would have all wound up. God would have had to destroy it all. But Christ won. He did not accept Satan's offer, his rulership of the world. He accepted the Father's offer of rulership of the world. Much better choice. He chose correctly.
How were you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. God's throne is in the north from the perspective of the earth. I will ascend above the height of the clouds, I will be above the most high is a better translation. Or I will be the most high. If he sets his throne above the Father, then his goal was to be the most high, number one. You see where the spirit of competition comes from. Yet you shall be brought down to hell, or to the grave, to the sides of the pit. They that see you shall narrowly look upon you and consider, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? The one that put together the whole new world order and thought to rule the entire world? Is this the one that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof? You see, Satan is behind the new world order. He is the one, the guiding strength behind all these people who want to put together a world government. And if their goal is decimation of the earth, decimation means all but one-tenth being killed, a decimal point, or a 10%. If that is their goal, where did they get that idea? Isn't he the one who is behind destruction? He's the destroyer. It's one of his names. So he is the one who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners. Wouldn't let any escape if he could help it. All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, every one in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch. He wanted to be the branch that would sprout up and rule the world. It won't happen. And as the raiment of those that are slain thrust through with a sword that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet, you shall not be joined with them in burial because you've destroyed your land and slain your people. God put him here to rule the earth. What was the first thing he tried to do? Destroy mankind. Lead him to death. Ah, oh, you won't surely die. You'll just understand good and evil and you'll be like God. First thing he did. You destroyed your land and slain your people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. Spain will not be remembered, anyone who tried to destroy Prepare slaughter for his children for the iniquity of their fathers that they do not rise nor possess the land nor fill the face of the world with cities. Those, see, you can only be a child of the father or of Satan. Didn't Christ tell the Pharisees, you worship, you know not what? You worship your father, and he even use those terms, your father, the devil. Anyone whose father is Satan, anyone who follows the society, the culture, the customs, the ways of this world, will not live. Satan's children will be slaughtered. And almost the entire population of the world today claims Satan as their father, whether they know it or not. They worship, they know not what. It is only those few called out once, the ecclesia of God, who are not Satan's children today. 
It is a very exclusive club. <coughs> Why are you and I included? Not because we were mighty and noble, I'll guarantee you that, but because we're weak and base and because we will be willing to be humbled and receive his spirit and be molded and made with him or by him to be a light to the world so that he might be glorified, not us, because we amount to nothing. Put us up against the mighty and the noble of this world in brain power. Put us up against the mighty and the noble of this world in terms of authority and power. Put us against them in terms of physical wealth. Pretty poor, aren't we? Pretty poor. But what do we have? The riches of God in heaven. He's on our side. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And therefore we can overcome the world. He says, you must overcome the world as I have overcome the world. Better know who your father is, because he is going to prepare slaughter for the children of Satan, for the iniquity of their fathers, that they do not rise nor possess the land, nor fill the face of the world with cities. No more are cities in the image of Babylon going to be allowed to be. For I will rise up against them, says the Eternal of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and son and nephew, says the Eternal. I will also make it a possession for the bittern and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the besom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders." This is the purpose that is purposed on the, upon the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. God lays out his business plan. His purpose is to destroy the wicked, to take Satan away, so that sin will no longer remain and only the righteous will live on the face of this earth. There should be a great strengthening there. There should be a great firm resolve laid there that we be among the righteous and not the wicked. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? This is just the way it's going to be, folks, he says. It's going to happen. In the year that King Ahaz died was this burden. So Isaiah still was writing in the days of Ahaz, and the year he died was the year that this particular vision came to Isaiah. But it's an end-time vision given in the days of Ahaz, king of Judah. Rejoice not you, whole Palestine, because the rod of him that smote you is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth an adder, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. He says of Israel... Just because the Assyrian has been destroyed, don't get too comfortable because out of his root will come a poisonous snake. And the firstborn of the poor shall feed, and the needy shall lie down in safety, and I will kill your root with famine, and he shall slay your remnant. Howl, O gate, cry, O city, you whole Palestinian, are dissolved, for there shall come from the north a smoke, and none shall be alone in his appointed times. So, 
he says, don't get too comfortable. I'm going to send from the north, that was where their enemies generally came from, a smoke. What shall one then answer the messengers of the nation? When they say, what has happened here? That the Lord has founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it. When this is all said and done, God will have founded in Zion a poor and humble people, as he says in chapter 3, I think it is, of Zephaniah. A poor and humble people he will have established in Zion. And they are the only ones, the only ones, who have been faithful upon the face of the earth. That's what it's all coming down to. They, then, will be combined with the dead in Christ and rise at the return of Christ as the firstfruits to rule what's left of the earth, to straighten it out and to finally make peace with a new world order, a new world government in righteousness. Isn't it incredible that everything God does, Satan counterfeits? There is a new world order coming. There is a new world government coming. But it's going to be Jesus Christ's government, not George W. Bush's or some German or some central banker in Europe or a Rothschild. It'll be Jesus Christ. Satan thinks he can pull it off. But about the time he thinks he has it done and everything is going to be a new world order under his rule, Christ is going to just sweep it out from under him and destroy it all. And most people on earth who have been the sons of Satan are going to be destroyed as well. And God will use the poor people that he has founded in Zion to rule the world. We don't need to fear the new world order. We will be the new world order. Or put it in those terms? Time is it? I'm almost done, aren't I? Maybe this would be a good place to stop because we, it changes here now and has a different uh, burden against the different people and it's, uh, it's two chapters long. So rather than get in the middle of that and, uh, and have to stop, let's just stop right there today and pick up chapter 16 tomorrow, God willing.